Once upon a time, there was a king, a real king, who was king of Prussia and the early part of the 18th century. Prussia is a province of Germany, or was. Now, Friedrich was known to be a short-tempered man. He detested ceremony. The king had a habit of walking through the streets of Berlin, and as he did, uh, he would often come across someone who might annoy him in any way. And if someone looked at him cross-eyed or something, it would not be strange at all for King Friedrich to take his walking stick and smack the person who offended him. One day as the king was walking through the streets of Berlin, uh, he noticed uh, someone walking up the steps of, of a house. And uh, the person was walking up the steps of the house because he was not able to escape, escape the king's notice in time before he was viewed walking up those steps. It was not his house that, uh, which uh, had the steps he was walking up toward. So the king calls out to him, hey, you there, what are you doing? And the man said, well, I'm walking up the steps to this house. The king said, is this your house? The man said, no. Well, is it your friend's house? No, it's not my friend's house. Then what are you doing walking up to this house? Well, by this time, the man was afraid that perhaps the king would accuse him of being a thief or burglar. And so he thought the best thing he could do was just be honest. And so he said, uh, to escape your majesty, and the king said, why would you want to escape your majesty? The man said, because I'm afraid of your majesty. And at this point, the king got really livid with rage. And he said, he was shaking. And not only was he himself shaking with rage, but he took this man by the shoulders and began to shake him. And he said, I am your ruler you must love me. Do you hear me, wretch? You must love me. Well, without a doubt, people of Prussia would be interested in knowing if there might be a better king than Friedrich Wilhelm. Now, in the story that we're about to read this morning from Judges 9, we're going to see something similar happening. A bad king with a deep sense of entitlement is openly ripping lives apart. And the people have to wonder if they will someday have a better king. Would you turn with me now uh, to Judges chapter 9? If you want to use your pew Bible, uh, that will be on page 208 of your, uh, your pew Bible. And uh, I want to read this um, in, in sections as we go. So we'll begin here at verse 1 and read through verse 6. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerobel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jerobel rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh." 
His mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Elbereth, of which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Oprah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Well, we'll stop here for the time being and pick up the rest of the story in uh, just a few minutes. There's a powerful message in this story. Uh, But before we get to the significance of the story, it's going to help us if we take just a a few minutes to to look at the setting, the symbols, and the story itself before jumping into the significance of it all. Uh, One could argue, as I am doing, that you, you really can't grasp the significance of the story apart from the setting, the symbols, and the story itself. And so in order to get the full impact of what God is saying to us in this story, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the homepage of your computer, the computer in your mind. I know you don't have your laptops with you. And even though I'm sure that 98% of you uh, have your phones with you, uh, don't pull them out. Uh, Just kind of play along with me here. So I want you to imagine you're looking at your, your, your desktop or, or your laptop. So I want you in your mind to go ahead and right click on the screen and there's going to be a menu that pops up and on that menu uh, you'll see new folder. So uh, go ahead and click that on. And um, are you following with me? Okay. Uh, establish a new folder and, and title this folder looking for a better king which also happens to be the uh, title of the sermon, as we see here, looking for a better king. And uh, as you do that, I want you now to go to uh, a, a Word document. Just open up a Word document, and uh, an imaginary one, of course, and uh, label it uh, setting to be... Well, we want to to distinguish from setting, so this will just be the setting. So um, now that you've got that done, uh, I want you to be prepared to uh, write some mental notes on on this Word document, and we'll come back to it in a little while. So let's talk about the setting. That is more accurately the geographical setting of what is happening in this story. The story this morning takes place in a place called Shechem. Shechem was about 30 miles north of Jerusalem and the area that we would know as Samaria. So uh, geographically and historically speaking, it's a, it's a rather significant place. Uh, geography affects history. If you've ever studied history uh, in depth, uh, you're, you're aware of that. Uh, you can trace any civilization back to its origin and uh, geography also always takes center stage. Uh, so whether it's a, a strategic military position or if there's an abundant water supply there or a convenient traveling location, uh, geography determines by and large where historical events take place. So the setting of the 
place of the message actually intensifies the words of the message. So I want to show that to you this morning. Uh, Shechem was the place where God appeared to Abram way back in Genesis chapter 12 and let him know that this was the land uh, that he was promising to give to him. And this was also, Shechem, uh, was also the, the first place in the promised land to have an altar built in the worship of the Lord. Also, Shechem was the first place where Abram's descendants uh, gathered to worship the Lord after they had crossed into the land uh, under Joshua. And you can read about that in Joshua chapter 8. Um, I found this uh, slide I think is going to be helpful. I found it interesting. Um, Shechem was at the foot of two mountains. Uh, Mount Gerizim you see on the left, uh, Mount Ebal on the right. Uh, this is significant because when the people of Israel would gather together, the blessings would be pronounced from Mount Gerizim and the curses would be pronounced from Mount Ebal. And there was a, a, a natural amphitheater that was uh, created by these two mountains here. And so someone standing on Mount Gerizim could hear what someone on Mount Ebal was saying, as well as the people down below in the valley at Shechem. Uh, they could hear what was taking place uh, on top of, of, of either mountain. So here uh, we, we see that, uh, you know, was the early spiritual center for, for uh, Israel uh, before Jerusalem. Uh, there's another couple of things here about Shechem. Uh, Shechem was also the place where Jacob's well was. And you remember when Jesus went to uh, Samaria, he said, I must needs go to Samaria. And so he went there and uh, there was a, a woman there who would come to draw water and uh, had that famous discourse there about uh, the, the living water. Uh, so all of this happens at Shechem. Uh, something else that, that happened there, uh, Joseph was sold into slavery near this place. In fact, the last memories that Joseph would have had of his homeland would have been in this area. And uh, Joseph also believed that God would one day return his people to Canaan or Israel. And so he gave the command uh, to his family to carry his bones back from Egypt and inter them in Shechem. And so this is where the, uh, the bones of Joseph were, were, were buried. Now, when you read about the murderous plot on uh, Abimelech's part to become a king at, at Shechem, it's, it's easy to overlook all of these little details of having no real importance. But uh, to reward Abimelech with the position of king of Shechem after having murdered his brothers to eliminate them as uh, contenders to the, the throne, uh, this, is, this is huge significance. Also of great significance was uh, Abimelech's leading of the people of Israel back to Baal, the false god of the Canaanites. So just to recap just a little bit, the people of Israel uh, had been going through this cycle 
after they uh, took possession of the promised land, uh, they would soon fall into idolatry and then the oppression would get so severe that they would cry out to the Lord who would send a deliverer also known as a judge. Uh, and then they would have rest from oppression for a period of time until they started the cycle all over again. And this is something we see repeated in the book of Judges over and over and over again. And uh, let me put it to you in, in ways that might make sense to us. You know, for, for the people of, of Israel to choose Shechem as the place where they are rejecting God, uh, their, their covenant God, and declaring their decision to follow after this Canaanite god Baal, uh, that would be like this. Suppose for just a moment that the, that the U.S. decided, you know, this whole idea of independence from Britain wasn't such a great idea after all. How about if we uh, you know, contact the, the crown and see if we can't come back under British control? Well, that's unthinkable. But suppose the place chosen for that would have been Philadelphia, you know, the place where the Declaration of Independence was signed. Well, that would be really difficult to swallow, wouldn't it? You know, the, the place where, you, where, where your nation's uh, birth took place and the uh, Declaration of Being Independent from Britain was an, announced, and, and now you're saying you want to go back and, and reverse all of that? You know, this is the, the sort of thing that's, that's taking place. So uh, if, if you can grasp uh, the, the significance of if we were to return to uh, British rule, uh, beginning at, at Philadelphia, you got a pretty good idea of what's going on at Shechem. The people were abandoning God in search of a better king. And the king they settled on was Abimelech. Now, I want you to keep this information about Shechem alive in your memory, so go ahead and click the Save button on that Word document in your mind, and uh, make sure it's labeled Setting, and then place it in the folder that you created on your homepage, the, the folder titled in, uh, in Search of a Better King or Looking for a Better King, either one. <laughs> so now that you've done that, let's go ahead and open a new Word document and label it Symbols. And uh, the symbols I want to talk about first are the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine. So uh, let's read about it here, uh, beginning in verse uh, 7. Uh, just kind of uh, provide a bridge here. Um, from one of these uh, mountains here uh, that, that rise above Shechem, uh, Jotham, who was the lone surviving uh, son of, of, of Gideon is, is shouting from one of these, um, he's shouting it from the mountaintop, uh, a parable of how the trees of, of the forest are searching for a king. So uh, follow with me here, beginning at verse 7. Uh, when it was told to Jotham, he went and stood at the top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go whole sway over the trees? And so the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, 
Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then the tree said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. See what the parable is saying here. Uh, In the parable, Jotham is making a reference to the olive tree and the fig tree, the grapevine, and the the bramble bush. The, uh, the, The olive tree, which produces, uh, well, olives, of course, and uh, olive oil, which was a, a, a prized commodity, uh, probably the largest cash crop in Israel. So you have olive oil, figs, and grapes. Uh, these are the most important crops in the uh, agricultural economy. All of these plants, plants were extremely valuable. But the bramble bush was not valuable at all. Uh, it provided not fruit, but thorns, not shade, but fire. So the bramble bush uh, could easily ignite spontaneously out in the, in, in the desert. And uh, when it did ignite, it could spread to uh, other vegetation and to other trees, causing significant damage and destruction. All right. Um, that's the first set of symbols. The, uh, the, the trees. Uh, now let's go to the, the second symbol, uh, which is uh, the stone. Uh, what you see on the screen here is, according to uh, some German archaeologists, in about 1907, they uncovered this stone and uh, believe it to be, and has been confirmed by many other leading archaeologists, that this indeed was the stone where Gideon's sons were massacred by Abimelech and his henchmen. And before that, this was the stone that Joshua erected when they came across, uh, you know, opposite uh, the the promised land and the famous invitation, uh, choose you this day whom you shall serve speech was made. And there was a copy of the word of God that was there and so, do you see all the history that's associated here? And, and um, now this is uh, symbolic, and it's not just symbolic, it's, uh, it's, it's also filled with significance. So, um, I, I want to go to Joshua 24 and read a couple of verses here. Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you falsely deal with your God. Now, this was spoken several hundred years prior to Abimelech um, hiring some uh, worthless fellows to kill his brothers. And the the words of Joshua 24 kind of come back to, to haunt, don't they? Uh, They certainly would haunt the, the people of Israel. Now, I, I want to put this question in your mind. You know, how, how tragic is it that this stone that was once a reminder of a pledge of faithfulness to the Lord 
is now a reminder of murder and rebellion against the Lord. Later on, uh, the symbolism of stone rises to prominence again when Abimelech dies, and uh, we'll get to that in uh, a, a few minutes. But what I want us to do now is to take this information about the trees and about the stone and save it in the file uh, of your folder of your homepage labeled uh, Looking for a Better King and uh, label this particular document Symbols. Okay. Now that we've considered uh, what the setting and the symbols in this story have to say to us, I want to move on and uh, ask you to open up one more Word doc and the computer of your mind and, and label it uh, story. So I want to pick up the narrative in uh, verse 16 where we see Jotham, the only son of Gideon to have survived Abimelech's bloodbath. He's explaining the parable to the leaders of Shechem. So let's pick up here in verse 16. Now therefore, if you have acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, seventy men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If then you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jothan ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Now, what is the point that Jotham is making in the parable? Essentially, what he says is this, you know, unless I'm wrong, which you know I'm not, you have not been fair to Gideon's family in making Abimelech your king. But if I am wrong, which you know I'm not, you may find great blessing in the rule of Abimelech, but if I'm right, which you know I am, then I hope you and he get what you all deserve. You burned by them and he burned by you. That's essentially what the parable says. Now, the parable that Jotham tells is, is designed to show just how, how foolish and how ridiculous it was for the men of Shechem to go out in search of a better king. They had the best king ever. God was their king. But they abandoned God and they chose this guy. They chose Abimelech, the, the bramble bush. And so what happens after this? Uh, well, Abimelech and his men uh, burned down the tower of Shechem, killing about a thousand men and women in the process. You see the... Um, the prophecy coming true, fire comes out from Abimelech. And uh, then in verses 50 and 52, Abimelech employs the, the same strategy uh, against the people of Thebes as he did against the inhabitants of Shechem. So Abimelech approaches the tower of Thebes to set it on fire when 
a woman who just happens to be climbing up the tower and just happens to be carrying this upper millstone with her, just happens to drop it from the tower, and it just happens to crack Abimelech on the skull. And Abimelech is thus mortally wounded. He's about to die. And in his last moments, what is he thinking about? Regret? Let me ask you this. If if you are mortally wounded and you know that you've just got a few minutes at most to live, what's going to be going through your mind? You might have thoughts of regret or remorse or repentance or getting right with God. Does that sound reasonable? It should, but those thoughts never crossed the Bimelech's mind. You know what he's thinking about? He's not thinking about regret, remorse, or repentance. He's thinking about reputation. He doesn't want to die a humiliating death at the hands of a woman. And so he calls for his servant to come and run him through with a sword so that he will not have to bear the shame, so that his legacy will not have to bear the shame of having been killed by a woman. And the servant obliges. (laughs) But guess what? The most widely read book in the history of the human race records the details of Abimelech's humiliating death at the hands of a woman. Justice is indeed served. End of story. Or is it? Actually, no. There's more to the story than meets the eye. There's more to the story than the story. There's also the significance of the story. There's a message to the story. Everything that we read here, the the setting, the symbols, the the story itself, uh, they, they all work together to communicate a a message that is meaningful to us today. So what is that message? What is the Holy Spirit saying to us through the setting, the symbols, and the story? Well, what I want you to do now is go back to that imaginary computer in your mind and and, uh, pull up that folder, the one, you know, uh, looking for a better king, and uh, go to that first uh, Word doc there. Uh, you know, you, you got setting symbols and story, but, but go to the, the, the setting Word doc and uh, see if there's anything there that's been uh, imprinted on your memory. Shechem is located at the foot of two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And when Jotham delivered his message from the mountaintop, did he do so from Mount Gerizim, where the blessings were pronounced, or from Mount Ebal, where the curses were pronounced? It would seem appropriate for Jotham's message of judgment to come from the place where the curses were pronounced, from Mount Ebal. But that's not what happens. Jotham delivers this doomsday message of judgment from Mount Gerizim, the place where blessings were pronounced. Here it is in uh, verse 7. Now I've got a question for you. Why was this curse in the form of a parable 
delivered from Mount Gerizim, where blessings are pronounced, and not from Mount Ebal, where the curses were pronounced. Because deliverance from evil is a blessing. Now that Okay, let's close that file here and uh, go to the, the symbols file. And uh, in this file, on this Word doc, you may have some mental notes here about uh, the stone. Now our text tells us that Abimelech's uh, hired henchman killed his brothers on one stone. And this event actually points us to another slaughter of the innocent by someone else who was not a legitimate king. Now, soon after Jesus was born, Herod, who was half Jew and half Edomian, sort of like Abimelech, who was half Jew and half Canaanite, uh, Herod ordered the slaughter of all little boys aged two and under in and around Bethlehem. And he did this for the same reason that Abimelech murdered or had his brothers murdered to eliminate all competition for position as king. The stone reminds us of this. Now here's something else about the stone that points us to Jesus. Uh, remember this woman who just you know, happened to be carrying this upper millstone as she you know, climbed up the tower and it just happened to slip out of her hand and crack Abimelech on the head. Let's talk about the significance of this just for a moment. Where did the stone hit him? You know, on his head. What would a king normally have on his head? You know, he might have a crown. And what would happen if a millstone happens to hit you on the head if you're wearing a crown? Well, the crown's coming off. So God was making it clear through the stone that his judgment was upon Abimelech. By the way, do you remember anywhere else in scripture where it was prophesied that the head of a serpent would be crushed by the seed of a woman? Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between your seed and her seed and he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first mention of the, the Proto-Evangelion, the first mention of, of the gospel and scripture, all the way back in Genesis 3. And here we see that imagery coming up again. Let's move now uh, from the stone to the trees. In the interest of time, uh, I want to focus only on the fig tree. So what's symbolic about the fig tree? After Adam and Eve sinned, they covered themselves with what? What kind of? What kind of leaves? Fig leaves. Fig leaves were the first means of covering sin and the shame that comes with it. But ultimately, it's not the leaves of the tree from which salvation flows. Salvation comes to us through a tree. It was on a tree that Christ was slain as a sacrifice for our sins. Okay, let's leave the setting, let's leave the, the symbols, and let's get to the story itself. 
Is there anything in the narrative itself that points us to Christ? Well, the book of Judges is about a series of judges or saviors whom God uses to deliver his people from oppression. And up until now, the people of God needed to be saved from some kind of foreign oppressor. But after God miraculously delivered his people from the oppression of the Midianites, the need for a different kind of savior emerges. So from here on out, it becomes clear that God's people need someone to deliver them from themselves. Like the Israelites, we come to God thinking that we need him primarily to deliver us from some bad thing, like pain or broken relationships or a, a lack of money. And I don't doubt that we need help with these things. Surely we do. But that's not what we need from God most of all. What we need to be saved from most is not what's out there. It's what's in here. Any salvation that fails to deal with the human heart is not real salvation. So let's think about it. What if God answered all of our prayers and gave us everything that we asked for? You know, prosperity, success, quality education, perfect government. Would that create heaven on earth? What if we all had infinite amounts of money. Would that make us better people? Are the richest people the most virtuous people? Did you know that according to an ABC News report, the people who are in the higher brackets of wealth and education are four times more likely to cheat at a card game when a $50 voucher is at stake? What if we were all well-educated? Does education eradicate evil? Lenin and Stalin were extremely well-educated men. What if we were governed perfectly by nearly perfect people in office? Does good government guarantee goodness in people? You know, we tend to think that the problem of evil is it's out there, it's in those people. You know, evil is in the, you know, the communists or the jihadists or the Democrats or the Republicans or the, the big businessmen. But the problem is not what's out there. The problem is you know, what's inside us. We need a savior who can deliver us, not from the curse around us, but from the curse that's inside us as well. We don't just need a savior to fix our situation. We need a savior who can fix us. Jesus is the true king that we seek in every form, the better judge who can free us from our own bondage to ourselves. Salvation is not found in better situations. It's found in the embrace of the savior. For many people, Jesus it's like a GPS system in your car. You know, you decide that you want to have a happy life, and so you um, tell God where you want him to take you, and so 
you're making your way through life and the instructions come, you know, turn up ahead and um, you might decide to ig ignore that instruction, you know. Uh, and when that happens, uh, you will hear this familiar word, recalculating. Isn't that what we expect God to do? We tell God what we want. We want a nice, happy, prosperous, successful life. And this is where I want to go. So, Lord, it's your job to get me there. And then God gives directions of where he wants you to go. And, you know, we ignore those directions and expect him to do the recalculating. We expect him to repent, him to change. But, you know, God is not a GPS system. He's not a genie in a bottle. He is the Lord God Almighty, King of heaven and earth. He is the Savior of our souls. He is Lord of our lives. So don't go looking for a better king. There is no better king. All other kings eventually devour you to make their lives better at your expense. The king we have is not someone who grabs you by the shoulders and shakes you violently and screams at you saying, you're supposed to love me, you're supposed to love me. Love me, you wretch, love me. The king we have is someone who allowed those who didn't know that he was king to stretch out his shoulders and allow them to drive nails through his hands and his feet into a cross to clearly communicate that he loves and saves a wretch like you and like me. Let's pray. Father, may we be in awe of who you are, of who your son is and what he has done for us. And may we also be in awe of how the story unfolds. It's a marvelous, wonderful story. And to think that you had us in mind before any of this ever really happened. It really does boggle our minds. We ask, Lord, that you speak to us. And pray that you bring us to the point where we realize that we do need you to be king of our lives. To be our savior, to be our Lord and our master. Not because in some ways that that might be a, something beneficial only to you, but because it's the most beneficial thing possible for us. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.